Hi, I'm Tammy Hicks-Jackson. Welcome to my podcast. I am a Christian pastor in the United Methodist tradition, and this podcast covers a variety of topics. You may find anything from Bible study and devotions to yoga and meditation from a Christian perspective to my thoughts on Christian leadership and the church. Look for the descriptions and the tags for each episode to find what you're interested in. And thanks for taking this journey with me. Let's jump into this episode. Our journey through Jeremiah continues as we pick up in chapter 11. This chapter begins with a reminder of the covenant. Um, We review the blessings and curses from Deuteronomy that are still in effect. Disobedience has been rampant back since the Exodus. Jeremiah likes the word conspiracy. Um, He seems to prefer that word in verse 9 to idolatry rather than calling it adultery or unfaithfulness to marriage. He calls it conspiracy or working with the enemy, participating in enemy schemes, basically colluding. You are cooperating with the enemy when you rebel because you're doing their job for them. In verses 14 through 17, once again, the prophet feels like God is saying, don't don't even bother praying for this people. And but we find here in this allusions to both marriage and vineyard imagery, both of which um, have been common as the prophets talk about Israel and Israel's relationship with God. In verses 18 through 23, God makes known a plan um, from men of Jeremiah's hometown of Anathoth um, who want to kill him. They're going to silence his voice by just taking him out. Some of these verses are actually quoted about Jesus sometimes, Um, about the conspiracy to get rid of him. In chapter 12, we have the first of five complaints that Jeremiah is going to lodge. They're sometimes also called confessions because they don't read like a courtroom complaint, but it just five times he's going to have a complaint to voice. I think this first one sounds somewhat like the book of Habakkuk and the first four verses of that first chapter. Habakkuk was a contemporary of Jeremiah's. Um, I want you to notice that he says, all the treacherous thrive. When we're in pain, when we're in stress, it tends to skew our perspective and our perception of different events. And so the fact that the unjust or the ungodly don't seem to be getting what they deserve, like they seem to be getting away with it, um, can make it seem to us like they're all, no one's getting any consequences. Um, He also says that they're giving God lip service, but their hearts are very far from God. And God's answer is that things are going to get even worse. There will eventually be justice, but they're not as bad as they're going to get. There will be justice in Israel. There will also be justice among the neighboring nations. Like, God isn't letting anybody get away with anything. In chapter 13, Jeremiah gives us an object lesson. I've talked before about how the prophets are really performance artists. They tend to use music, poetry, drama, art, um, theater performance. They, they act things out for us. And so here in this one, we're getting one with a loincloth. Jeremiah goes and buys a loincloth. He wears it. Then he's told to hide it and retrieve it later, but he finds it to be ruined. Um, the people were supposed to be God's special people um, that God held close to himself, that he was intimate with, but now they're ruined. Um, They're going to go from being intimate to being exiled. 
in verses 12 through 14, we get another object lesson. Wine jars that are filled, um, and that's that how it should be. Wine jars should be full, but they're going to drink their field. They're going to get drunk with wine, and in this case, it's the wine of judgment. And there will be no pity or compassion shown to them because they have chosen their path. Verses 15 through 17 are a lengthy poetic section. Um, so pervasive has their sin become that change seems like an impossibility. It seems as impossible as changing one's skin color or an angel, an ang, animal, excuse me, um, changing its coat or markings. And the consequences of the path they've chosen to walk will be as inevitable as labor pains. Once labor has begun, it has to be seen through to the end. In verse 24, it refers to chaff. This was the useless pieces from the grain harvest, and they would usually pick up with the winnowing fork and throw the grain in the air, and the wind being blown across would blow the chaff away so they were left with the valuable. And then in verse 26, that skirt lifting we've seen before is a humiliation tactic. It'll uncover their nakedness. They'll be um, shamed physically and embarrassed. Um, Chapter 14, Jeremiah then describes a drought. In verses 7 through 10, they repent for any wrongdoing and they ask God to help them. Yet at the same time as they do, they they accuse God of not being there when they need him. So God rejects what God has determined to be an insincere prayer. And once again, in verses 11 and 12, tells the prophet not to pray for them. Um, Their ritual actions without sincerity and obedient living are hypocrisy, and God's not falling for it. Verses 13 through 18, Jeremiah blames the false prophets for the people's behavior. They are what they have been taught. Um, There's a lot of truth to this. I very frequently say it about the church. When we, on the ministerial side, become frustrated with people for not having the right vision of the church, for thinking it's all about them, for wanting what they want, for getting lax about sharing the gospel and trying to bring other people into the family of God. In large part, church people, church members, have become what clergy have formed them to be. We encourage them to become consumers of religious goods and services and to treat us like a place where they were shopping for what filled them spiritually. Um, So here, Jeremiah is saying the same thing. These bad prophets have created bad people in their spiritual lives. And God says it's true. That's true. But the people are still going to suffer for the way their prophets have formed them and for the way they have let themselves be formed and for their own failure to listen to the voice of God. The results of the famine are going to be everywhere. Um, There's going to be violent battles over supplies in the fields and the countryside, and there's going to be sickness and starvation from it in the cities. Verses 19 through 22 are another attempt at communal lament. They promise to be obedient um, they're, they're even forsaking their idolatry, and it leaves us thinking, hmm, what will God say now? And as we move into chapter 15, God answers, and God's answer is no. Um, he says, even if Moses and Samuel, which were Israel's two great intercessors, were to come and ask, the answer would still be no. They have chosen their path. Um, in verse 3, it talks about orderly um, 
there, there's an order to the progression of what happens here. First, they will be slain or killed. Then their bodies will be dragged away by the dogs. They'll be picked over by the birds, and then the wild animals will come and eat on what's left. It's a really gruesome picture. In verse 4, it says this is happening because of Manasseh. Manasseh was a horrible king, but about 100 years before. That's a long time before the consequences. And we can find more of his story back in 2 Kings 21. What Jeremiah seems to be saying is that the stain of his rule, the things that he started and perpetuated, are still going on now. The impact on the hearts of the people remains and has even gotten worse. Um, God says that he's, he's quite tired of this. He's tried everything already. He's tried it over and over. He's weary of relenting because it hasn't worked. They never truly mean their repentance. In verses 18 through 22, we have Jeremiah's second of the five complaints or confessions. He's not popular with people. They don't like what he's preaching. So they wish he'd hush. Um, and he's, he's upset about it. And he says he wished he'd never been born. Um, most preachers can identify with his exhaustion, with his fatigue, with um, his irony. We, we just, we get tired of being criticized. Um, he insists that he's a prophet of integrity, but he feels that God is not protecting him. Like, God, I answered your call, and you don't seem like you're showing up and doing what you promised me you do. You're not being the God that I've proclaimed you to be to me or to the people because you're letting this go on. In verse 18, the wound that he's talking about may be a wound from an assassination attempt that we know about from previous chapters. Um but he's probably just referring to a broken heart. He's wounded in his spirit because of what's going on. Jeremiah feels that God should be a refreshing presence, but instead, Jeremiah just feels abandoned and lied to. Again, this is an attitude that a lot of pastors can identify with. It comes on when we're tired, when we're approaching burnout, when we need a break um, from it. In verse 19 through 21, God responds. And basically, God just says, trust me. Come on, Jeremiah, you've got to trust me. In chapter 16, verses 1 through 4, Jeremiah is commanded to remain celibate and single. He'll have no kids. He will be uh, an end to the branch of his family tree. And this is a radical suggestion. Um, the Hebrew language didn't even have a word for bachelor. Like, it's just not something someone would have done. Men got married. They had children. They had as many children as they could have. That was, that's the purpose. Um, so here Jeremiah's life is beginning to become another object lesson for us. In verses 5 through 9, uh, Jeremiah is told to refrain from engaging in either the house of mourning, lamenting for the dead, or going to the house of feasting. Um, which is probably referring to a wedding celebration. So it's capturing the full range of human emotion and human experience, from celebrating the birth of a new family through marriage or the, the celebration of a birth of a child, to the end of life, to mourning that comes with death. All of that, um, the prophet is told, will be ending soon, so don't do any of it. Verses 10 through 13 um, he asks, why is this all happening? And when people ask, why is this happening? 
Well, the answer is their idolatry. Um, they're going to be hurled out of the land. That's a pretty vivid image picture there. They're going to get evicted, cast away, um, forced out, much like Adam and Eve were forced out of the Garden of Eden. And they're going to be forced to serve other gods. Um, in other words, you've wanted to serve other gods. Well, now you're going to be forced to do so all the time. You're going to get what you've asked for. Verses 14 and 15 stop and interject with a very brief message of hope. There's going to become a new exodus, a new um, marking point of their faithfulness and their chosenness by God. It's interesting to me that very rarely is it all gloom and doom, but it tends to be more gloom and doom than anything else. But there are always these glimmers and in-breaking visions of hope. In verses 16 through 18, we go right back to the consequences of their behavior. The enemy is going to fish and catch them and going to hunt them down and find them. Verses 19 through 21, God is resolved to show them all the strength and all the power of God. Um, Cross-reference this with Exodus 7, 5 and Ezekiel 6, 10. As we move into chapter 17, their sons... um, their sins, excuse me, they have committed to other gods and it has become so thick and so pervasive that it feels permanent. It's like become a part of who they are. It's etched in their stone hearts. And that etching, that letting it become permanent has kindled a fire of anger in the heart of God. Like God is frustrated and angry at what they are doing and what they have let happen. And there's a contrast in verses 5 through 8 between trusting um, in mortals and trusting in God. Um, Psalm 1 um, repeats and kind of rehearses the fact that the latter, trusting in God, is the preference. And that's how you become fruitful even during challenging seasons like the one they're experiencing and that they're going to experience going forward. Verses 9 through 11 contain the strongest statement in the Bible about the state of the human heart. It's where we get the idea of original sin and total depravity are from statements like this. But this one is quite strong. Total depravity is something that we think about with Calvinism. Um, There's the tulip, the five things that define Calvinism. The T is total depravity. The U is unconditional election. The L is limited atonement. The I is irresistible grace. And the P is perseverance or um, protection of the saints. Uh, We as Methodists are not Calvinist. Some Baptists are Calvinist. Most Presbyterians are Calvinist. There are some Presbyterians that reject a couple of the points or they soften some of the points of the tulip here. Um, John Wesley and... Wesleyans would not necessarily reject the idea of total depravity, but we would allow for room for God's prevenient grace to also be at work. We believe in conditional election, meaning that we have to opt in. Um, Humans have free will that we exert and are asked to choose to be in relationship with God. We believe in unlimited atonement, um, that God desires to save all, and provides everything necessary for us to do so. Everything necessary and sufficient. What is offered to us is the free gift of forgiveness 
through the grace of Jesus Christ. It's offered to us, but we have to accept the gift. So rather than the Calvinist view of unconditional election and limited atonement, we would say conditional election and unlimited atonement. We also believe in resistible grace. Um, you, you're, you still have free will. So God is drawing you and wants you in relationship, but everyone possesses the ability to resist that and to reject it. And then we do not believe in perseverance or preservation of the saints. Um, God never forces us to be in relationship with God, not in this life and not in the life after. So you can choose to come into relationship with God, and then you can choose to end that relationship and walk away. So Methodists do not believe in once saved, always saved. So we differ on a lot of that from the Calvinists. But on the idea of total depravity, it's a true statement even from us that apart from God, um, we are not good. We, we need God to redeem who we have become as human beings because of the presence of sin in the world. But we would say we were created good. Originally, God created a good world, and we're the ones who keep messing it up. God is the one who keeps trying to fix it and fix it through us. And God's prevenient grace is already trying to fix it. God loves us before we love God. Okay, in verses 12 through 18 of chapter 17, we have Jeremiah's third complaint. Um, He honors God. He asks for personal salvation, and then he requests vindication for what the people think of him. In verses 19 through 27, he's told to go preach publicly, and his, the preaching of this sermon is focused on the Sabbath day. Keeping Sabbath is a way, uh, a beginning of obedience to everything else. If we cease striving in the world's way, we come to a point of rest, and we rest in God, in God's presence, Then we become quiet and still to hear the voice of God speaking to us. And then once we've heard it, once we understand who God is and who we are to God and what God wants us to do, then we are able to go and obey all that we've heard. Um, So preaching about the Sabbath day is a chance to give that they're being given to obey and change their fate. In chapter 18, we have... um, imagery of the potter and the clay. And so the potter's house becomes another object lesson in verses 1 through 11. Um, There's repeated reworking. Um, The potter's making something, it collapses, and he has to start over. Israel has had a lot of do-overs, but God is the potter. God determines the vessel and the existence of the vessel and when it's time to rework it and start over making it. Um, God sometimes plucks up, breaks down a nation. God sometimes builds up and plants a kingdom. But it is for God's purposes that God ultimately gets to decide the timeline and the what. Verses 12 through 17, um, they're remaining stubborn. They just are insistent on following their own plans instead of following the plans of God. In verse 14, it talks about Lebanon. Lebanon was a mountain on the borders of Judea. It was covered in snow even in the summertime, like the Alps between France and Italy are. Um, The heat of summer would cause some of the ice and snow to melt, and it would produce a cold flowing stream that was quite refreshing. Verse 17, 
They're going to be scattered rather than gathered. Um, they'll be seeing the back of God. God will look away from them. Verses 18 through 23, um, here's another attempt, or perhaps it is evidence of an ongoing attempt to silence Jeremiah. Um, now they're appealing to the teachings of the priests, sages, and other prophets who differ from Jeremiah, trying to discredit him. Jeremiah is saying this, but look at all the other prophets who disagree with him. Jeremiah is a quack. Stop listening to him. So Jeremiah's response is to come back with his fourth of the five complaints. He maintains his integrity and once again wants vindication. Chapter 19, we have another object lesson of the broken jug. Jeremiah is told to go and purchase one of the vessels, a completed vessel from a potter. Then he's to take some of the elders and the senior, most priests with him, and go to the valley of Hinnom, Hinnom and break the jug. Um, the valley of Hinnom is where they engaged in child sacrifice back in 2 Kings 23.10. Um, he prophesies horrible deaths for them, the scorn of outsiders, and even cannibalism among the people. The breaking of the jug is the breaking of the people, and it's the fault of these leaders that he's taken to watch it. Then Jeremiah is told to go back to the temple, uh, back to the temple court, and preach this message to the people. Like, you warned the leaders first, and now you're going to tell the people. In chapter 20, we have Pashur, the chief priest. He's not going to let Jeremiah come up there in his temple and be preaching this message that he doesn't like. Um, he's not going to let Jeremiah have the last word, particularly not in the temple. So he beats Jeremiah and has him put in stocks uh, where he stays overnight. He's hoping to disgrace him. Um, Maybe make him uncomfortable enough that he'll just shut up, but it doesn't work. Jeremiah cannot be silenced. Um, and so Jeremiah says that Pashur and his family will be lost to history. And sure enough, um, they are in fact lost to the historical record following their exile into Babylon. And then in verses 7 through 18, we have the fifth and the final and the longest of Jeremiah's complaints or confessions. Jeremiah's call is a hard one. He's told up front he's not going to be very successful. He's not going to be popular. People are not going to want to hear what he has to preach, but he's to preach what he's told. Um, he is, in fact, a public spectacle. People make fun of him. They ridicule him. Um, he's embarrassed, and they are too. He is literally, when he was in the stocks, a public spectacle. Um, and this, by the way, is only the first of a number of times that the prophet Jeremiah is going to be physically assaulted, publicly shamed, rejected, and humiliated. Um, even his own friends are denouncing him. Haven't we all known someone that we just kind of back away from, or we've had people take another side against us when we're trying to do the right thing? What I see pictured here is a profound state of depression, loneliness, and discouragement. Um, Jeremiah has hit a wall. He's reached burnout. It's common among ministers. Um, it's, it's a lonely and hard call. But yet the prophet never walks away from his call. We, we are hearing his heart. He's being very vulnerable, very transparent, and very open with us as we see what a very difficult time he, he is having trying to do his job, do it with integrity, and love this people, and try with all his might to bring them to where God wants them. 
And so with that, our um, journey through chapters 11 through 20 of Jeremiah um, comes to an end and we'll pick up in chapter 21 next time.